These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. A religious historian is going to tell you that the Assyrian Empire rose up, became strong and terrifying, through the power of the God of Abraham, and was brought by divine providence to destroy the nation of Israel for their unrepentant sin. A secular historian is going to tell you that the Assyrian Empire rose up, became strong and terrifying through a series of remarkable innovations and energetic leaders and came to squash Israel almost as an afterthought as part of greater strategic aims. I'm going to tell you that a god who rules all the earth with perfect knowledge can arrange history in many subtle ways to accomplish many subtle and unsubtle purposes. As we approach the final days of the northern Israelite nation, we start to get what some religious people call a cloud of witnesses. That is, a whole bunch of prophets that start to appear to convince the people of Israel to repent. But from an historian's perspective, the sudden appearance of biblical prophetic books provides us invaluable context for the era that we don't have for other eras. Now, these prophetic biblical books are obviously not histories and obviously not impartial, but to the extent that they do reflect a contemporary tradition for the 700s and into the 600s BCE, which many likely do, they are a mine for us to dig through. Now, I'm not going to stop and teach the prophets. In all honesty, I did consider that, but it might be too much of a step away from our main narrative. We will be looking at Daniel during the Babylonian captivity because his book is way too interesting to skip, but also Daniel isn't a prophet. At least, he's not classed among the Nevi'im, the prophets, but among the Ketubim, the writings, and has a more folk-historical sort of approach. We are going to mention prophets, but we're not going to follow them too closely. But before we walk away from them completely, I want to note that the prophetic books, depending on how exactly we date them, seems to represent an innovation in Yahwistic religion that did not exist prior to about the year 800. Now, dating the prophets is very difficult and full of controversy, some of the prophets are so vague in their proclamations, at least historically speaking, that we have no idea when they might have taught. Joel, for instance, could be put anywhere from about 830 all the way to the 400s, so we're going to leave him out completely for the moment. But based on rabbinic tradition and the various mentions in the book, the first prophetic book that we have situated in history is the book of Jonah, who traveled to Nineveh perhaps sometime around 770 BCE. Within 50 years of that, we have the traditional dates for Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. And only eight years later, Israel has fallen. A generation later, we get the book of Nahum, and a generation after that, as the Babylonians approach, we get in quick succession Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Zechariah, and Haggai, with Malachi showing up at the end of the Persian period. Now, in a sense, in, in a sense this is normal and expected for the Yahwistic religion. We have heard about prophets pretty much since Moses, who either took charge of the people of Israel or formed their own political faction to advise the various kings and leaders. But none of their writings survive. And while we do hear that some of them had books written with their names on them and could well have been the authors of those books, we don't know if they were producing scripture or if they were producing commentary, or history, or something else entirely. But one thing we will hear about going forward is that the people of the north in Israel hold to the first five books of Moses, and we hear from the modern Samaritans, who claim to be the successors of those northern Israelites, that they hold many early prophets in common reverence, 
but they don't hold to any later books of scripture, rejecting every single prophet from the time of the divided monarchy onward. Now, this makes sense. The biblical prophets weren't exactly complementary to the Samaritan denomination. But at the same time, it tells us that something is changing in the Yahwistic religion that didn't catch on in the North. No longer is God merely the God of our fathers who laid down the patterns for life in some distant antiquity. Now he's a God who continuously communicates through his people, through prophets, and those prophets don't just confirm what's already been said, but add new truths and new text to Scripture. Remember, at this point in history, the Yahwist faction does not have the Old Testament as we have it today. They may have, depending on who you talk to, the five books of Moses at most. And they have the rituals of the temple, many of which have been lost to history. Some sort of oral tradition has been pretty broadly known about and pretty heavily debated about throughout all of Jewish and later history. But something, something is so compelling about these first prophets that even though no one's thought yet about adding new books, but these first prophets, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Jonah, Jonah may have been written much later, even if he did live earlier, but something about these guys compels people to start recording their words collecting and copying their scrolls at great expense, not just writing it down, but preserving it, and adding these things to the canon of God's word. This is a new thing. Now, we call the Jews and their successors people of the book, but really up to this point, they have been the people of, at most, a few scrolls and some oral tradition, which is all most faiths ever seem to need. It's at this point in the generations leading up to and following the collapse of Israel that the need or the desire for more scripture begins to appear, starting with the prophets, then the histories start to become scripture, and then the various writings of cultural wisdom seem to get added in as well. Now, the question of why in all this is probably beyond me. Surely the fall of Israel and later the fall of Judah, as predicted by at least some of these prophets, had something to do with it. Surely also the natural evolution of the religious climate, so much of which is invisible to us, was extremely important as well. This sort of cultural history is vastly harder than the political, economic, and military because it's created of so many million tiny and often arbitrary decisions. These threads woven together into an amalgamated gestalt which becomes just one of many pieces within a grand tapestry of culture. And then seeing it on the floor, we can scarcely imagine the other permutations any particular part may have taken. But of course, we feel sure that many other kinds of outcomes were possible. What am I getting at? I don't know. Poetry aside, last time we got to King Pekah of Israel. But in the process, we skipped over Uzziah of Judah and his son Jotham. Now, Uzziah is a bit of an oddity. He's claimed to have ruled for 52 years, yet working through the chronologies and synchronisms, it's pretty clear that he ruled for less than 20 years, pretty much no matter how you slice it. Now, the traditional answer to this has been that he became co-ruler with his father at age 16, then ruled in his own right for a period of time after his father died, then he picked up some leprosy, and then was once again co-ruler with his son until his death. Alternately, that 52 number could have been mistaken at some point in history, though I in this case, I don't see a textual basis for the idea of this particular number being garbled like we do with a lot of the other numbers. Anyway, who really knows? We hear that Uzziah rebuilt a city, and we hear that he beat the tar out of the Philistines. 
The Philistines, by the way, do seem to be weakening in this period. They are in a long-term sort of decline. Judah, in particular, is going to beat on them pretty consistently going forward. It's going to be a while before they disappear completely as a people, but they're no longer the power-wielding giants in their battles anymore. Anyway, Chronicles tells us that Uzziah was a man of rare economic insight, sponsoring significant amounts of land development in the fertile but vulnerable Shephelah Plain of Judah, allowing Judah to begin to produce and export a lot of high-value agricultural goods. Archaeology confirms the economic prosperity around this time, though it indicates that it was focused on exports that would largely pass through Israel or Sidon, and Judah itself remained a resource supplier for the wealthier powers of the period. Quite interestingly, scripture claims that Uzziah funded inventors and engineers to construct ballistae and catapults on the towers of Jerusalem which is pretty cool. It's going to play a role next episode. Now, after a bit of all this, he gets himself some leprosy, as I mentioned, and he ends up living in presumably a quite posh sort of quarantine for the next decade or so until his death. No word whether he sang Imagine on a YouTube video like all other quarantine celebrities, but he was right with God, so I suspect probably not. Now, at this point, his son takes over, Jotham of Judah, who doesn't usually get a lot of discussion. He followed the right denomination, but he gets criticized because some people in Judah did not follow the same denomination, and the government of Jerusalem was, of course, installed by God to stamp out religious freedom of expression. It was a literal theocracy. He spent a good deal of expense and effort improving fortifications in and around Judah, a sign both of the need to fear his neighbors and that good fiscal management had left his kingdom with enough wealth to do so. We hear that there was fighting between Judah and Pekah of Israel, as well as between Judah and Syria, and between Judah and the Ammonites, the last of which went quite well for Jotham, resulting in a sizable tribute following that war, and there was also fighting between Judah and Judah, particularly the Yahwists and non-Yahwist faction, who seemed to exist in a, at this point, decades-long simmering civil conflict, in which violence is not infrequent. Now, Jotham did a good bit more besides all this in 16 years of either ruling or co-ruling, and of course that's all written down in books that are now lost. Of course, I'm always sad to hear of missing books, but I have a feeling, from what little we have, that the infrastructure developments of Uzziah and Jotham in Judah, if we had those full chronicles, would make for one of the most interesting ancient documents that we could recover from this whole period. Probably there were of minimal religious significance, but it could shed a great deal of light on the state of engineering, economics, mathematics, and government in the period in somewhere that's not Mesopotamia. But we don't have it, so what are we going to do? What we do have is Ahaz, Pekka, and Hezekiah, all of whom the Bible cares a great deal about. Starting with Ahaz of Judah, what we have for him in Scripture shows that he's something of an odd duck. King of Judah in the south and son of the righteous Jotham and father of the righteous Hezekiah, his very name is a theophoric name without the theophoric element. We've already seen a king named Jehoahaz, which means Yahweh is held. And our king Ahaz bears a shortened form of Jehoahaz, specifically with the God part taken out. We do have some other examples of this in scripture. For instance, Moses also has a theophoric name with the God part taken out. 
Now, some have simply suggested that this was just the fashion at various times to have a shortened common name. And we do see even some Egyptians who have full theophoric names being sometimes referred to with the shortened version, even in official documents. Some, however, have suggested that Moses or his successors may have deliberately removed the god part from his name, since being born in an Egyptian palace, he probably had an Egyptian god stuck in his name. And so just going from that example, Ahaz could have reduced his name because he didn't like having the god of Judah in his name, or it could have just been fashioned to have a short name. Alternately, the divine part of his name may have simply been assumed, or at least he thought it would be assumed, because what other god would a king of Judah be held by, other than the national one, of course? And so begins a life of extreme piety as Jotham passes away. There is some suggestion that Ahaz may have seized the throne so somehow, but we're not told that he killed his father, and we're not told directly that there was any succession struggle. So it may have just been the members of the losing religious political faction being bitter about his ascension and saying nasty things about him. Anyway, I say he was a man of extreme piety because we're told straight away in both accounts that the Lord of Judah so loved his people and his nation that he gave his beloved son in divine sacrifice in order that the chains which threatened to bind the nation be loosened and that the people be spared from a day of coming destruction. Symbolically, the people were one with him before the throne of the divine, and through his sacrifice as the head of Judah, all those who were at one with him could vicariously share in this national corporate sacrifice, assuming that repentance had, of course, been made appropriately. This was, of course, an extreme measure necessary for extreme divine judgment, but it was a necessary one. And the saddest thing is here is that we're not told what was the context for this brave and loving and humble and noble sacrifice of the, from the king towards his people, which is, of course, a clear type and shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. No, no, no. I got my notes wrong. Never mind. Ahaz was a wicked king who worshipped multiple Canaanite gods, and therefore his act of child sacrifice is a vile and unforgivable sign of his deep immorality. After all, it is unquestionably evil to have an innocent take on the sins and the punishment of the guilty. Oh, I might be confused again. Anyway, the whole point of these chapters is that Ahaz is emphatically not a Yahwist exclusivist, adopting the worship of many Canaanite gods in addition to Yahweh, and it isn't clear if he always actually included Yahweh in his prayers or not. Some think he did, there's good reason to think he did, but some think he didn't. But whatever his religious affiliation... Ahaz, at this point, gets hit on all sides at once by external enemies, which kind of makes sense. His father attacked pretty much everybody and fought with pretty much everybody, and now his son is there. Oh, everybody wants to attack. What a surprise. Anyway, the Arameans over in Damascus are getting pretty frighteningly powerful by now, and they make an agreement with King Pekah in northern Israel to attack together. Meanwhile, the Edomites down in the south, still seemingly bitter about the whole generations of being dominated thing, they hop in on the action as well, and the enemy armies make it all the way to Jerusalem. Thankfully, the previous two kings have been obsessed with high-tech fortifications, and these walls must have kept the city safe, since it doesn't seem to have been God keeping Ahaz's city safe. 
Now, this crisis, by the way, may have been the occasion for Ahaz's sacrifice, since while child sacrifice was a thing in the ancient Levant, outside the Yahwistic prohibition of it, it was typically an act of extreme desperation, an offering of the very best to heaven, in hopes of some pretty significant blessings or miracles. We see over in Carthage, the biggest infant graveyards come right as the Romans are about to destroy their entire civilization. And Ahaz may well have decided that his offering had worked, since while there were significant territorial losses, Jerusalem itself remained safe through all these years of chaos. Now, in the aftermath, Ahaz decided to make sure that such an attack could never happen again. And so he got on his knees, and he offered up all that he had in petition to a higher power. That higher power, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, accepted that offering and soon after performed the miracle of destroying the city of Damascus, transporting the survivors to another part of the world and replacing them with colonists from the Cathayan region of modern-day Iran. This, at least, is what the Bible tells us. Tiglath-Pileser himself wrote about this campaign and fails to mention that he was acting on the bidding of the king of Judah. But also, this Levantine campaign is far more wide-reaching than just Damascus, pulling huge parts of the region into Assyrian domination. While we're going to cover the whole thing in more detail when we get to Assyria, it's enough to be known for now that the shape of regional politics shifts completely during the time of King Ahaz. Before, the region was a group of consolidated states gradually growing and pushing up against each other. With this campaign, though, everything north of Israel is Assyrian territory, either integrated or vassal. And of course, soon enough that'll be everything north of Judah, then Judah itself. There still are minor powers, but they're all either aligned with Assyria or Egypt, or they're only years from being swallowed up themselves. One thing to note in all this is that Ahaz paid his tribute to Tiglath-Pileser, at least in part by plundering the Temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. This is of a piece with the rest of his reign. He was, throughout it all, a consistent and staunch enemy of the Yahwist exclusivists headquartered in that Jerusalem temple. So why not pay for a ma major national expense through the wealth of a national institution which was opposed to his ecumenical religious faction? Symbolically, the act of submission made Judah subject to the king of Assyria, and this is why they get spared when Tiglath-Pileser comes a-knocking. And so King Ahaz, who spent his entire life rejecting the protection of the God of Abraham, turned his whole life toward protection from physical defenses, Canaanite gods, and international powers, was thereby able to protect his nation from a tidal wave which washed away every other major power in the region. Then he died of natural causes and was buried with honor. Up in Israel, however, uh, things aren't quite so rosy as all of that. About halfway through Ahaz of Judah's reign, Pekah of Israel died from an acute case of politics. You see, around the time that Tiglath-Pileser was in the region, smashing up Damascus and other parts of the Levant, he also paid a visit to Israel. Pekah was a member of the anti-Assyrian faction. Recall that he'd taken the throne via assassination, and one of the key policy points legitimizing him was that the dynasty he overthrew was pro-Assyrian, and it turned Israel into a tributary state. Now, surprisingly enough, Tiglath-Pileser, who loves those who submit to him, he loves extreme violence and hates rebellion, is somewhat less than pleased about this change in national policy. 
And so he conquers the entire north part of Israel and everything east of the Jordan River, leaving a squarish rump around the few core cities of central Samaria. The conquered territories are completely desolated, to a degree rarely seen in the ancient world prior to the Assyrian conquests. The survivors are deported to other parts of the empire, and a small number of local Assyrians are settled into a few of the better spots, leaving most of it an empty wasteland. As stark as the picture is biblically for the devastation brought in by the armies, the archaeological picture is even more grim here. A land that had been positively thriving for a century reduced to desolation. Anyway, Tiglath-Pileser's unique brand of diplomacy is persuasive enough to shift Pekka back over to the pro-Assyrian camp, and to push what remains of the Kingdom of Israel back into tributary status. But then the politics of it all gets a bit confusing. A fellow named Hoshea shows up at this point, and it isn't clear what his stance is on the Assyria question as he murders Pekka and takes his throne. Though it's pretty easy to see that Pekka, a former anti-Assyrian forced through military defeat into tributary status, is probably not very popular with anyone. However, right as Hoshea takes the throne, he doesn't get much time to make his own opinions clear, as Shalmaneser of Assyria shows up right around the same time on a tribute-collecting expedition. Hoshea knows full well the relative might of the two nations and submits with tribute, but clearly isn't a big fan of it. And so he starts conspiring with the Egyptians to form an alliance. But this gets found out. Shalmaneser considers it an act of rebellion, which it kind of is, and comes over to stamp out that rebellion in the only way Assyria considers appropriate. Now, it does take him three years to besiege Samaria, which is a good showing for the defenders, but also only prolonged the misery of all involved and from an Assyrian standpoint justified even harsher retribution following the collapse of Israel. Retribution which was taken in full, to the extent that the ten tribes of Israel were said to have vanished completely from the face of the earth. This isn't literally true, but as we'll see next time, the survivors had good reason for feeling like it was. And that pretty much is the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. Hoshea's exact fate is unclear, but we assume he dies at some point because he doesn't seem to be alive nowadays. This simplifies our narrative significantly. We'll now only have Judah for the next century or so. But of course, this simplification does come at a tremendous cost in human life and regional vibrancy. And of course, Shalmaneser himself doesn't really care all that much about crushing one tiny state when there's another right next to it that can also be captured. And everyone knows that the Assyrians have their sights set on much larger prizes than mid-sized Canaanite kingdoms. But that gets us back down to the south. A very few years before the destruction of northern Israel, wicked King Ahaz had died, been honorably buried, and then was apparently peacefully succeeded by his son Hezekiah. Now, the most remarkable thing in our sources is that while Ahaz seems to have been focused on a polytheist religious policy, Hezekiah is a remarkable Yahwist exclusivist, seemingly right off the bat. This seems remarkable, and Chronicles tells us that his very first act as king was to cleanse the temple, including a priestly incantation specifically repudiating the king's father's idolatry, suggesting that some pretty drastic religious and political shifts were happening within at least the court and perhaps the nation. And perhaps, well, there should be some shifting going on, because Hezekiah took the crown staring down a gun barrel. 
While his Judah was nominally a tributary of Assyria, courtesy of his father's plundering of the Yahweh's temple, the growing Mesopotamian Empire was something to be deeply cautious of, if not outright terrified by. Hezekiah, prior to the destruction of Israel, sends some proselytizers around both Israel and Judah to call people to a great Passover festival in Jerusalem. This whole festival could get an entire episode devoted to it, but for now we'll see the claim that some in the north did come down to participate in the Yahwist feast, despite not having the same religious customs as the Judahites. And I, I really do mean it. The religious reforms of Hezekiah deserve substantially more focus than I'm giving them. And it is in many ways an echo of what David had done so long ago in terms of putting in order the priests and feasts. Much is made of how much religious ritual had been long neglected, how much things had been out of correct order, and the implication here is that perhaps not since the united monarchy had the Yahwist faith been in so much ascendancy. And yet we've heard quite a bit up until now of a few righteous kings of Judah. We just had Uzziah and Jotham. Before that, we had Jehoshaphat, who was celebrated. And yet, why are we to now think that all of those guys were righteous if they weren't following Yahweh properly? Because this guy is the first guy to follow God properly in a long time. Is it possible that the writer, that the earlier generations had no idea about things like the Passover festival because such a thing hadn't been invented? And earlier biblical mentions got invented around this time and then inserted into the story? The fundamental question here is whether Hezekiah and the Yahwists around him are fundamentally restoring the old faith or reforming the faith into something new. Now, a third possibility is the whole story of Hezekiah's faith is in fact overblown, and that nothing of great significance actually happened, but we would wonder what the motivation for such a fabrication would be from the perspective of both the Deuteronomist and the Chronicles historians. And such skepticism would basically lead us to throw out the vast majority of our scriptural account, even now that we're in the historically confirmable portions of it. Now, there's far more to discuss here than I'm discussing, but I think the key at the end is Sennacherib's attack. After Israel collapsed a few years into Hezekiah's reign, the Egyptians were generally content in the region. Everyone, Israel, or Judah included, was either an Assyrian dominion or a tributary state. Then, about ten years later, give or take a bit, there's a general revolt of the southwestern dominions following the death of the Assyrian king Sargon II, and his successor Sennacherib comes down to put down the revolt. Of interest before looking at the campaign, though, is that Judah did not at first rebel, it seems. Instead, Judah responded to the ascension of a new king with a massive offer of tribute, with pious Hezekiah even following his father's example of stripping the gold off the doors of the temple to pay for the nation's protection. And if that was the end of the story, it probably would have seen Judah going down in history as one of the barely remembered kingdoms to come and go in the Near East. Because either Hezekiah decided for himself, or some Yahwist prophets convinced him, I credit usually gives goes to Isaiah, but there seem to have been a lot of prophets running around, whoever it was, someone decided that Judah was basically invincible. I mean, sure, it was a second-rate power right next door to the most terrifying empire so far in human history, with relatively low population and no significant advantages. 
but it had the god of the universe on its side, and all other gods are false, so nothing else really matters. So after the rebellion had already begun, and the full might of the Assyrian Empire had already arrived and started showing the minor kingdoms of the Levant who was boss, Hezekiah then chose that point to rebel against the Assyrian Empire. And we don't just get this story from scripture either. Indeed, many of the details come from Sennacherib himself, because when he'd finished putting down the rebels in Syria and was greatly surprised to see them reinforced by Egyptian troops of all people, his army marched straight through the devastated, desolate wilderness of Samaria and knocked on Judah's front door. Now, the front door in this case was the fortified town of Azekah, Situated on a high point overlooking the main north-south roads into Judah, it was the first major settlement that the invading army passed upon leaving the Assyrian, that is, formerly Israelite, territories. Cavalry, and possibly chariots, supported by light infantry, swept around the fortress ahead of the main army, catching up anyone who hadn't evacuated and overwhelming most local resistance. Those captured were either enslaved or publicly dismembered in front of the walls of Azekah, so that no one inside could have any doubt as to what was coming. Assyrian archers, in shield formation, suppressed any counterfire from those same walls, while the infantrymen, spears at the ready as they dug in the ground, constructed earthen ramps, which approached the walls with shocking rapidity. In perhaps only a matter of days, weeks at most, the height advantage of the hilltop fortress had been completely neutralized. Up those great earthen ramps were brought battering rams, potentially a good handful in number, to pound at the walls. Unlike the movies, they didn't attack the gate, but they picked some side wall that seemed advantageous for whatever reason seemed likely at the moment. It would take a bit of pounding, or quite possibly, depending on the style of ram, a bit of scraping. There were pounding rams, and there were also pointed scraping rams that would tear away at the mortar between bricks, and then you'd pound and tear and pound and tear both together to get even some pretty significant walls pulled down. And through all of that, it seems that the Lord God of Judah did not bother protecting these particular walls. Indeed, he didn't even bother remembering the people of this border fortress in Scripture at all, as the only account of this battle comes from the Assyrians, who quite proudly report that once the walls were fallen, the pious people, who had only a few years earlier been at the great Passover feast, were put to the sword, and the city plundered and thoroughly burned. The next stop in Sennacherib's Holy Land tour was Lachish, and this battle is particularly notable for the immortal commemoration it received in Sennacherib's famous Lachish reliefs, a series of carvings depicting the battle and its aftermath. Now these these reliefs, they're actually a really great source for the later Assyrian army, which at this point has gotten siegecraft down to a science. But we're not going to be focusing too much on that today. Rather, just as an exercise, just to sort of get in the head of how really afraid you should have been with the Assyrians coming towards you. Let's just put ourselves in the shoes of a citizen of Lachish. You know what's coming. You know. You've been living through this period, and you just know. Perhaps last year, the last major regional coalition meant to defeat the Assyrians was just obliterated. And everyone has heard that since then, the enemy has done nothing but set town after town to siege, with horrible consequences. More recently... You heard about Azekah. Then suddenly, people from outlying districts began flooding into the town, some with everything they own, and some with nothing but their lives. And they tell you to look out over those walls. 
and you do, but you regret it. The Assyrians are here. At least they're advanced contingents. And they've grabbed some poor schmucks that couldn't run quite as fast as everybody else. These men have been stripped naked. Their hands are bound, and they've been impaled through the torso on perhaps a 10 or 12 foot long pole, which was then hoisted up and planted in the ground like a bloody living flag. These men are not dead. They're not going to be dead for many hours, and you can hear them from the top of the wall. Some of them are begging, some of them are praying, some are spitting defiance, but most are simply overwhelmed with pain, alternating in fits of sound and silence as their bodies inexorably fail. These men's families are nowhere to be seen, but the only question with that is whether they're being force-marched to the slave markets already, or if the families are being held and abused in a central location until more human war loot can be collected. The king over in Jerusalem, he keeps a handful of men stationed at the gates, and rumors circulate as to whether or not any more were sent in time. But Hezekiah's mobilization was focused on defending the capital, not Lachish. And so the city's rulers put out a call for fighting men to sally out and attack the Assyrians before the siege can get established. Now things in town are just madness. All anyone seems to know is that young men from town and refugee men from all ages are mustering at the walls with whatever pointed sticks and cloth armor they can assemble for themselves. Now, fortunately, the city is a fortified station. It has a good amount of inventory purchased by the king in the armory to distribute. And the militia soon organizes around the professional garrison and sallies out to try and disrupt the Assyrians before they're able to get established. The main army is too close, however, and the effort is a failure, with the militia soon driven back within the walls. Minus, of course, the casualties left in the Assyrians' hands for public mutilation before the walls. What happens next is not fast. No part of it is quick. The main army arrives and constructs an oval-shaped camp outside of town. Now, the army probably holds more men than Lachish has in total people and they feed themselves in a few months by pillaging the food that everyone in town was expecting to last them the rest of the year out in those fields. With the camp complete, many of the men take the supplies they brought with them and construct wheeled monsters the size of houses, with archer towers atop, rams out front, and a great deal of space inside for pushers and even for infantry to be protected while approaching the walls. Others find open spaces to dig, building up mounds of loose dirt beside the camp. A few more sallies are attempted to slow down this construction, but the camp is well guarded day and night, and nothing is accomplished for all that wasted life and effort. Some try to escape during this build-up period, and some of these are seen the next morning atop fresh spikes while others are never seen again, with no indication of their fate. Still, the mound of dirt and bricks and rocks outside the enemy camp grows each day. And while you've heard what they're going to be used for, you can scarcely believe it. Finally, the day comes. Now, you're a healthy man of the city. You're on the south wall. And while the mass of men outside the wall has been busy each day up until now. That business has a different quality today. A line of spearmen assembles, each carrying an oversized shield, each followed by two bowmen. Behind them, another line of shield bearers forms up, themselves followed by additional archers. Behind this line form up more shields, and within this formation are unarmed men, shirtless in the heat, some pulling handcarts full of dirt behind them and wearing sometimes exotic hairstyles, frequently shaven, but clearly ethnically different from the people around them. These are slaves, but they're military slaves, so they're still not your friends. A bunch of them are carrying torches and pickaxes, 
And then you hear a shouted order given somewhere in the distance. And in your sight, the ranks begin to march. Never in your life have you seen such a coordinated spectacle. A mass of men greater than the number of men upon the wall, moving in perfect unison, like a giant beast whose body parts were men. Now you're no stranger to synchronized dances, but neither this scale nor this murderous purpose has any reference in your previous life experience. You shiver and call upon God, feeling the morale of your comrades plummet in synchronicity with the Assyrian march. The Assyrians form a line, running from a cliff face to the base of the wall, about 300 feet long, plus a nice wide defensive perimeter. You pelt the men below you with rocks, throwing them out of your sling, but the shield-bearers are alert, and the formation is little affected. The men with torches and pickaxes set to work, pulling boulders from the cliff and passing them hand-to-hand along a line of military slaves who deposit them terrifyingly near your own post, directly beneath your feet on the other side of the wall. These rocks look to be... 10 to 20 pounds each, only just broken up enough to be easily movable. And as they go down, handcart after handcart comes in behind and dumps loose dirt into them, forming an artificial hill. You had learned that it was God who created all the hills and the valleys of the earth. But over the next 25 days, as you watch the Assyrian army move three million stones to change the landscape of the southern face of Lachish, you learn that God may be powerless to stop this defacement of his world. Certainly, as you grow hungrier and hungrier with ever-tightening rations, you know that you are powerless to stop whatever they're doing. The men around you don't even fling rocks and arrows anymore, except a few times a day, as you're already running out of both even getting to the point of deconstructing houses just so you have something to throw at the enemy, which they typically dodge or block, and then they cheerfully just add the stones to their ramp. As you look up, you see the moon in the same phase it had been when the Assyrians first arrived. Looking down at the world before you, you still see the same bodies on the same spikes, though now badly decomposed, biggest change is that the enemy now has a ramp directly up to the base of your wall, negating completely the advantage of your fortified city on the hill. As dawn breaks, you see their priests making strange offerings to foreign gods. You wonder about your own god, yours and the strange one your neighbor worships. Priests and prophets within your town make all sorts of proclamations, but... Without some sort of miracle, things are looking pretty dire. And then suddenly, one of the buildings within the enemy camp begins to move. It's larger than your house, a structure of heavy timbers, paneled with treated leather, a few small windows in strategic places, and a phallic spear thrusting out of the front, as thick as your leg and long as two men. It seems to roll on its own, you assume, from pushers inside, and it's surrounded by a frenzy of activity, which is itself bordered by a circular perimeter of shield-bearing spearmen and archers, rigid in their formation to contrast the many workmen running back and forth on unknowable tasks. It takes a few hours to climb the ramp and reach the wall, but once it arrives, you realize that the upper deck, full of well-protected archers, is about level with your elevated position, and you and your friends on the wall have nowhere to hide. You run off the wall as fast as you can, while braver and more well-equipped souls take cover behind shields or wall outcroppings as best they can. You see a neighbor die, an arrow throwing him off balance and landing skull-first on the road below the wall. The panic atop the wall is magnifying into an even greater panic below. You can already hear people screaming that the walls have fallen. Now those gossip mongers, they'll be the death of your city, but they're not correct yet. And you can see a pair of larger men, far braver than you, carrying a pot of hot coals and throwing them atop the Assyrian ram. 
One dies instantly from the archers, but the other gets the coals over the walls. But to no effect, as the enemy has come prepared for this, with treated leather and water buckets inside the war machine to put out fires before they start. The other man dies on his way back out. In the distance, you hear that panicked citizens have forced open the front gate and are fleeing out of it. They're carrying all their possessions with them, though how they imagine to keep their worldly goods, their freedom, or even their lives is a mystery as they push against the Assyrian encirclement, and it may even be a mystery to they themselves. The wall falls. You've seen it being undermined for hours now, and what brave men still remain circle up around the breach as the ram pulls back. The battle on top of the walls has begun, as ladders brought up Assyrian soldiers to challenge for the high ground, and the enemy's making quick work of it. The main force marches through the breach in orderly formation, meeting and cutting through your disorganized rabble. All your professionals were cut down at the start of the siege in the various sallies. You manage to fend off a few spear thrusts, but the enemy archers are on the wall now, your wall, and you take an arrow to the shoulder, throwing you down to be trampled beneath the Assyrians' grinding advance. Behind them, youths carry small knives and axes to support the army in various ways, and a 14-year-old boy gets the first kill of his military career by sending you, finally, to the afterlife the prophets have promised for you. You've escaped the terror of the street-by-street, one-sided brutality that's going to be inflicted on the city. You don't witness the survivors of Lachish being captured and rounded up. You don't see that once the city's evacuated, the city is burned to the ground in full sight of its former inhabitants. You don't get marched past a rack of city leaders being flayed alive. You don't get force-marched across hundreds of miles of desert to a new land of foreign bondage. You don't see any of that, because when the Assyrians sack a city, the dead are counted among the fortunate. Next episode, the Assyrian army will arrive at Jerusalem. We have far fewer details for that siege than for Lachish, But this episode's already run long, so next time we get to see Judah moving from a single city under an absolute siege and a famine that descends into cannibalism all the way to Judah as a power substantial enough to make inroads back into Assyrian territory, albeit pretty neglected and devastated hinterland. War is hell, but when the Assyrians are involved, we might prefer hell. So join us next time as we figure out how the prophets got so famous, ask why they're being persecuted, and see just how politically powerful they really are. Thank you for listening.